I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Joseph Scalia, a psychoanalyst and social critic in private practice in Livingston, Montana. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. I'm really glad to get to do this. I I think the more word gets out there in the world about this, the better chance we have of protecting this landscape so thank you exactly it's of the utmost importance how did you get started in this in the first place in the environmental activism Mm -hmm. you know i think uh i think it's just been a gradual thing of a gradual matter of accretion like i mean going back to when i was a little boy really but um, I, I think the, the real event was when I first moved to Montana in 1980 and I was, I don't know, in, in certain ways, a struggling young man and God, I came into the wilderness and was just I, like saved, delivered, um, it was it was it was a cradle of of um, otherworldliness that I I needed. Transformational. Yeah, I mean, you know, it didn't do away with my then symptomatology, um, which in some ways I'm still working on. Aren't but, we all? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. Yeah, it was um, transformational. I remember, so my wife and I came out here together. Um, so we were kids and um, and we'd had an argument and I went out and laid out in the back of my pickup truck um, in 20 below zero with a couple of feet of snow on the ground and crystal clear sky, still air, no wind. And I could see up into this canyon called Lost Creek Canyon from the Deer Lodge Valley. And 
oh my God, that was, that moment just was something. And then there've just been many since then. Yeah, I've been, I've been president of Montana Wilderness Association. I was on its board of directors for seven years. Um, and, and I'm now a critic of that organization. Um, yeah, I've been varying degrees of active um, for a long time, but now I'm in the thick of it. What is your work now? Well, so, I mean, I do have a, a psychoanalytic practice, um, but I'm working fewer clinical hours than I used to. So fewer is like in the low 20s now. Um, and that leaves me more time to do other things. And so I'm now... Um, president of a group called the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance. And we're trying to protect a certain crucial area um, of wilderness from other environmental groups, including that group that I used to be president of, Montana Wilderness Association. They and the Wilderness Society and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition have all banded together with industry, I'll say, various industries, including recreation, the recreational industry, and maybe I'll call it also, so I'm going to jump to Alain Bedu, um, and uh, Bedu does this uh, lovely differentiation between um, satisfaction and happiness, or the terms he gives it, and I mean, it's, it's sort of between jouissance and desire, essentially, or between refusal of castration and acceptance of castration. Um, and, and, and for non-analytic and non-Lacanian listeners, I'll just interject. That means symbolic castration. That means acceptance of limits, acceptance of lack in being, acceptance of a thing like that there is a thing such as um, insatiable longing that you know cannot really be satisfied. We can only chase after it over and over again to our own detriment or, and or the detriment of others. Um, so, and it also means acceptance of, um, and this is this is more difficult, I think, acceptance of. Uh, what is missing in the social order. So that the social order, I'll use Zizek's way of putting it, his differentiation between there's the, the public law, there is what society says is and exists and makes sense, and then there is always, as he calls it, the perverse superego supplement or the obscene supplement or leftover, what isn't said and that is damaging. Um, so, so Badu talks about satisfaction as, um, you know, like refusal of, of symbolic castration. We're going to go after it. Like, so there's recreation. So now to wilderness. 
So the battle here, so, so do we like push into wilderness to have fun, to be, so here's, here's how I got started onto all this Lacanian and philosophical stuff. Do we want to be fun hogs to use a kind of clearly in my view, detrimental or, or, or disparaging term, but a term that some people who are fun hogs use for themselves. So like, I'm going to go out there, um, you know, push myself to the limits and just be gung ho and super strong. And, um, and I'm going to ride my mountain bike further and further into the wilderness. And, and it's just this kind of, um, well, I will just have fun. And, and there's a loss of, of consideration of the greater world. And so that's what Bedview means by satisfaction here in its manifestation in the battle over protecting wilderness. Or are we gonna instead put limits on that and seek happiness, which comes out of an aesthetic, an embrace of aesthetics, of beauty and the sublime, and not needing to um, refuse symbolic castration, but rather going through that and finding happiness in that passage and that um, space. So maybe I'll, I'll say a little on the ground what's what's happening, and then kind of break and check in with you here. So what so what what exists here is so we're on the so we're, I'm sitting right now about 50 miles north of Yellowstone National Park in Livingston, Montana, um, right, um, right near the, uh, the Yellowstone River and the Paradise Valley, um, right outside the window is the, well, is the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness. So Yellowstone National Park is 2.2 million acres. It has roads through it, but it is very wild um, and then bordering it to the north is the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness without roads and it is another one million acres and then um, then so that's like well and then there's, there's the Paradise Valley that and that goes up the Yellowstone River into Yellowstone from Livingston and then across from that is the Gallatin mountain range, which is not protected as wilderness. Um, and it's part, all of this land is part of, that I'm naming is part of the, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And so that, so the Gallatins are another, which, what could be protected as wilderness is almost another 300,000 acres. Um, but it is also extremely crucial to the continuation, the continuing existence of the grizzly bear. So Yellowstone, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is the most intact, um, richest, um, large ecosystem left in the lower 48. Um, it's, I've called it lately, our Amer America's Serengeti. I mean, it's grizzly bears, it's enormous herds of elk, it's moose, it's 
um, it's wolves, it's it's wolverines, it's coyotes, it's bighorn sheep, it's mountain goats, it's mule deer, white-tailed deer. I mean, on and on and on through smaller animals and it just and it everything that was here before non-indigenous people got here is still here in this huge landmass and so the wolves arguably and the grizzly bears scientifically um, solidly demonstra demonstrated um, or dependent on being able to access that that land I named a little bit ago and I'm going to talk some more about it later here the Gallatin mountain range they need to be able to pass through that landscape the grizzly especially into the northern Rockies ecosystem where there are other grizzly bears so in the Yellowstone ecosystem there are 700 grizzly bears roughly and that's not enough to preserve their genetic integrity going into the future and and so they need to be able to get north and their access is blocked so that's that's the sort of marker of the easiest way to demonstrate and I'm not an ecologist and so I can't do the scientific arguments as well as as, as an ecologist could but I can say it's a good marker of the um, wildlife health of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem um, that they need to be able to pass through there. And, and what's happening is um, land that has been protected under a different law called that, well, that sets aside a, instead of wilderness. So there's the 1964 Wilderness Act that allows for wilderness areas, quote unquote, in the United States, which means no roads, no, roughly, it means no roads, no mechanized travel, so no mountain bikes, no, it's not just no motorbikes, it's no mountain bikes. It's, it's, you can't bring chainsaws, you can't bring any, anything mechanized or motorized, but also not mechanized. So it's, um, it's it's quite restrictive and so the impact of of humans in there on wildlife is relatively minimal although there can't be too many humans and so that needs to be looked at too and we don't currently have a law to limit that um, a federal law and we probably ought to as our population is frighteningly expanding humans across the globe you know and and here too so um so finally the, in the Gallatins, there's an area called the, uh, well, I, there's an area that is a, a, a wilderness study area, quote unquote, and that's protected by a federal law and, and, and is designated wilderness study area. And it can only be changed um, ultimately by an act of Congress, but there are a lot of steps to getting there. And there are three, the three big environmental groups who I named already are agreeing to forego the lower elevation lands of that wilderness study area to mountain biking. And so if that happens with the flood of mountain biking that's happening here and the flood of humans that's coming in here in no time at all, say in 10 years from now, it's, gonna, it's just gonna be crazy up these 
beautiful low ele low elevation for here, relatively low elevation. So I mean, we're talking 6,000 to 800, 8,000 foot of elevation, but it's like meadows that then rise up to the mountains above. Um, and it's very rich um, country and secure landscape for wildlife, including to survive through the winters. Um, but they need it in the summers too. And if you, if you put a mountain biking park in there, which is essentially what would happen, it's going to do severe damage and maybe destroy the passage. So, so I, there's, there's in a long nutshell, what the stakes are. That's just the current fight. That's the, yeah, well, very good, Vanessa. That's, that's the current fight. Yeah, there are a lot of them. It's like, what do we do with humanity? What do we do with our, in our kind of collective insistence in this neck of the woods, in our sort of privileged neck of the woods to be, to be um, satisfied in Veggie's sense of it, to be fun hogs? You know, can we collectively put a sufficient limit on that? And right now, even environmental groups who have the money and the political clout to do that have decided not to try to do that. It's terrifying. I never thought about it the way you framed it, too, about, you know, accepting castration. And this is kind of like on a wide scale level. People aren't accepting our own limitation uh, and we're maybe like overcompensating by just thinking we can just mine everything and just continue to make the earth produce and produce for us and throw it away be fun hugs throw it away wherever it'll be fine bury it bury it in the ground you know not taking care of what we're doing or being conscientious yeah 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 it is deeply disturbing and yeah, and, and how many people can even allow themselves to reflect upon it is problematic. Yeah. <laughs> I originally come from Florida, and it used to be a joke when I was young, but it's really not funny that the like highest points of elevation in Florida are all trash mounds. Wow. <laughs> and when you're driving down the main highways, I mean, they're like every couple of miles is another one. And it's like, this is just like this all over the state. Like, who thinks that this is the solution to just bury, just keep burying the garbage in the ground? You know, it's, it's. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I know. Yeah. We're just devouring the earth. I, I have this, uh, this idea of, uh, I, I'm thinking I'm going to write a book on, um, like a, a wilderness ethic that is part and parcel of a collective human ethic, a proposed collective human ethic. Um, so as the um, Quebecois Lacanian analyst Willie Apollon puts it, we need a collective ethic of the good of the all. And then if you extrapolate or expand that to uh, so that's for human coexistence, but if you extrapolate that to we need an earth to live on, then we need a collective human ethic of 
the good of the all meaning humans and all the land. So Terra and Demos. And so all people, the people, Demos and the land, Terra. So to mean all animals, all, all plant life, all landscape, all land. It's like we've got to have all water, we all sky, all air, we've terra, all of that. We've got to preserve the earth sufficiently. And we, you know, capitalism is has no mechanism to do that. It just continues to devour the earth. And again, citing Badu, Badu says if you know if we're gonna keep a place for humanity, there are two problems. One he calls objective, and that's the problem of capitalism, period. Um, to him, it's just that matter of fact, you know, in a world where obviously the capitalistic powers who control the media don't want that to be part of everyday, you know, public discourse. And then the subjective, you know, can we generate the kind of collective human ethic we're talking about? Yeah, I think it would be really helpful if people would start thinking about the earth as being living. You know, the earth, the earth is alive. I think all of us, everything on it is alive. <laughs> you know, that would help. Stop treating yeah. it like it's not. Yeah. And I think the point you said in the beginning as well with um, this faction that you used to work with and was the president of is now kind of on this other side. But we're seeing that a lot now where like the institutions that we have trusted with kind of regulating these sort of things have kind of been siding with the industries I think more than a lot of people realize instead of keeping them in check the way we had imagined they were. Like siding with this like kind of entertainment recreation industry part of yeah. nature park life. Right. 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 Yeah, very good. Um, they uh, they have, I mean, you really hit the nail on the head. So those three groups, and I'm going to name them again, Montana Wilderness Association, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, and the Wilderness Society, they all have enormous budgets, and they've all increased well i don't know about if the wilderness society has increased its budget in the last say 10 to 15 years as much as these other two have perhaps um and i know the other two have enormously and like you know like fourfold um and they're funded by large groups they're funded by you know, foundations with capitalistic, capitalism ties. Um, I mean, well, we get into a critique of philanthropy, right? I mean, those who can give massive, obscene amounts of money got their money through the savage inequalities of capitalism. I mean, to be plain and simple and undisguised about it. Um, and so, yeah, those three groups who, by the way, call their way of working with other interests like logging, mining, motorized recreation, mechanized recreation, they call it 
collaboration and compromise. Um, and like these are good words and these are good ethical things they're doing. Um, but really, they have become part of, and you, you cited this, um, you made me think of it, of what Wendy Brown, the political philosopher, calls the economization of everything. In fact, I think that's the subtitle of her book, whose title is Undoing the Demos. Um, and, and how she talks about how all, and this is what you were talking about, how she just to expand it a bit, how, how all disciplines, at least in their dominant voices, have had to capitulate to capitalism, essentially, to specifically neoliberal capitalism, to what's arisen since 1980 that has so obscenely expanded the inequalities of capitalism. Um, and, um, and what's happened in universities, how the liberal arts, the humanities are getting more and more attacked on the sciences and, um, the, um, oh, there's the STEM fields are more and more having to, they're more and more reliant on, on funding from the corporate world. And so what they get to research is more and more determined by the needs of capitalism. So that's what's happened with these big environmental groups. They've wed themselves to the discourse and the negative hallucinations of capitalism. And, and I mean, I don't think, I, I don't think they understand they've done that, but they've done that. What do, you, what do you read or what could we read to read more about these sorts of issues? Like, what would you recommend? Hmm. Who do you read? <laughs> yeah, well, I've named a bunch of the key people for me already. I mean, I would really, I would say, you know, look at, where, where's, what is the book in which Zizek's, paper on where he talks about the perverse superego supplement. I'm not pulling it up. Anyway, Zizek, Slavoj Zizek, Alain Badiou, Wendy Brown, um, Henry Giraud, who I haven't spoken of. Um, um, who, no, Cornel West. Um, um, yeah, so Henry Giraud and Cornel West talk about activism and you know, how to go about activism. And, you know, they're both scholars and academicians, um, but very much activists. Um, Lacan, um, not for direct activism, obviously, but for the analytic act. I mean, so here's a whole nother area of um, reflection. So, I mean, I'll, I'll offer up here publicly and, you know, and of course, as any number of analysts do, we go through more than one analysis in our analytic lives. And I'm back in analysis at this point in Lacanian analysis. And, um, and it's really rattled my cage. 
and um, and in you know and quickly and hard hittingly and it's like oh my god I had a session recently where I mean I was like tremoring I mean my body was it was like I was hypothermic and I wasn't I know. When you get a good cut, it's like getting slapped in the face. It's just like getting completely stunned. Like, what just happened? Like, bam. (laughs) That's what I felt like. (laughs) And and so, you know, it's to look at how do I kid myself? And so I bring it up because it's like, how do I kid myself? And how do I unwittingly disempower myself? And how can I find... a space within that is unconveyable really to another in a way that another can say, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about, but that is the space of capacity to influence, capacity to shake up another um, in an ethical way. And so, And, and that's Lacan. I mean, others who have used Lacan's work, of course, speak of that. But, you know, as in political activists and um, cultural critics and philosophers. But, um, but yeah, that's the psychoanalyst Lacan. And I, I do think there is... For anyone who wants to dig very deeply into this work, there is no substitute for at least reading some fair volume of Lacan, um, which of course is voluminous, as you know, um, as voluminous as Freud. So I don't know, those come to mind anyway. And I think it's great how you're using kind of psychoanalytic thought to address these social issues because I really feel like um, it's been kind of a disservice that psychoanalysts haven't been looking at social theories as much in like past decades. And I feel like we all do need kind of collectively to be like shook up a little and wake up clearly, you know, like we can't pretend that right now the impeachment trial is not going on. You know, that's what's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I and I I do wonder why more analysts don't enter the public arena. Um, but also, but I'm glad I am doing it. And and I and I am well, I mean you became aware of me because I submitted something to a a conference. Um you know, essentially, I mean, making those links out of the clinic into the greater world. And, um, and I've, I've presented at the LAC conferences also, which is also doing that. Um, and, um, and I'm writing, um, I have a couple of papers in a magazine, an online magazine called Mountain Journal, that is out of Bozeman, Montana. Um, in fact, my wife and I are having dinner with its editor. Um, 
this evening. Um, and, and I, you know, and I'm looking at, and so I go back to now my own analysis. It's like, so how do I, how do I write somewhere like Mountain Journal um, that is going to get read by all those environmental groups I'm criticizing or, or get interviewed here or get interviewed on Wilderness Podcast where I was this summer interviewed. And how do I speak and how do I write in a way that doesn't gratify some symptomatic satisfaction, again, as Bedu called it. Um, you know, to, to, to grab hold of, to not, um, be derailed by that kind of unwittingly that derailed by that kind of satisfaction in myself and instead to speak critically to someone who's going to be, who I'm asking to feel undone by what I'm saying to them. How do I do that in a way that has a chance of them hearing me? And so that's the analytic act. That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know for a long time, my way of doing that had a, a pugilistic form that I didn't altogether recognize. And um, yeah, and that's part of my analysis now to not gratify that, to do something greater. What's the psychoanalytic scene like where you are? <laughs> it's very small. Um, I've been able to practice psychoanalytically here, though, for decades. I was trained originally in modern psychoanalysis, so like Hyman Spotnitz and Phyllis Meadow, mm -hmm. um, and then got my doctorate at the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis just a few years ago, finished that, in psychoanalysis, um, society, and culture. Uh, because I was so interested in cultural criticism and linking that with psychoanalysis. Um, and so, I was, so I've been very influenced by the moderns, but also um, by Christopher Bolas and the middle school. I was in supervision with Bolas and, well, for like five years, six years weekly, and one of those years twice a week because I – because he did a control case for me. Um, and then I worked with him on other cases another time a week. Um, and so, and then, and then for a number of years, I, I went up to Quebec, um, to the Ecole Freudienne de Quebec, and, um, and did their um, week-long seminars for like Amazing. 12 years. Yeah. And maintain a relationship with um, Charles Turk, who's um, more affiliated with them even than I. He's an analyst in Chicago. Um, and Charles and I review, we swap off reviewing cases with each other monthly and have done that for about 10 years. Um, and, and so 
I brought all of that mix into into Southwest Montana and started a little psychoanalytic institute, um, and did quote certify a handful of analysts through the um, American Board for Accreditation in Psychoanalysis slash um, the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. Um, and then as I got more and more into Lacanian studies and, and into my doctorate out of Boston, where, by the way, I traveled scores of times, literally, um, uh, I, I think my interest in the, in the Psychoanalytic Institute here waned and I just didn't have the time and energy for it either with everything else I was doing. But also I, I, I will say I, I think my theoretical kind of hodgepodge that wasn't well enough integrated um, was part and parcel of why that institute ultimately has not survived. Or maybe I could have tried to make it survive lately, but I haven't been interested in so let it go. Um, but so there are there are some practicing analysts here who um, who I trained and um, some more Lacanian, some more object relations, um, one more modern. So they reflect that collection of theories that I brought. But yeah, it's just like a literal handful, like five or six people. And out of a field of maybe a couple hundred therapists in Bozeman Livingston. So yeah, we're a tiny minority. And so what's here is what's everywhere in the US. It's, you know, it's, um, it's what insurance companies want. Yeah, that seems to be worldwide. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, yeah. unfortunately. Yes. But yeah. we, we thrive, we survive. Yeah. Now we have the internet to connect with one another and have, we can have a networked international community. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And that's how I'm doing another analysis at this time in my life. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm finding that's the, the case more and more because people don't always have access to the kind of analysis or analysis at all in the areas and a lot of training schools especially in the Lacanian orientation are helping yeah. an analysts train in that way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <sighs> um, Badu was asked in an interview um, is the world situation hopeless and I think he laughed um, and, uh, he said something like, uh, well, I'm a philosopher and to be a philosopher, you really have to be something of an optimist. If you're a pessimist, there really is no reason for you to exist as a philosopher, which <laughs> sort of interesting to ponder. Um, but I think you can say something similar about being a psychoanalyst and, holding our ground and uh, continuing to maintain in a world that rejects the integrity of analysis, 
to continue to maintain it and practice its integrity. It's, uh, it's lovely, actually. Yeah, I feel very inspired when I was a younger analyst and uh, learned of all the analysts, you know, that died during World War II and, and practiced in secret and met in secret to study um, and how much they were persecuted, but still continued to, like, feel driven to study and, like, practice the profession. It's incredible. Yeah, that's, that's great to be reminded of. I'm glad you said that. I knew that and have not thought that in a long time and had certainly not compared it or likened it to our current situation in the way you just did. Wow, I like that. That's even, that gives me even more hope. Huh. Yeah, they did it, so we can do it. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and, there's, and, and that makes me think of, there's like this resurgence in the conservation movement too now. So back in the day, like when the 1964 Wilderness Act passed, there was hope. There was, I mean, it was, it was a time of, well, of the 60s and the early 70s and, and an insistence upon human rights and a, a, an insistence upon the dreams of equality coming true. And you know, and it was a, a groundswell across the Western world. And, um, and then it's gradually been almost suffocated in the last 40 years now of neoliberal capitalism and of so many, including so many young people, thinking this is it, this is life, being a fun hog is all there is. Um, and yet there are young people who reject that, who say, no, that's, there's, there's more. And, um, and so in the conservation movement, it's, that is the case. It's like most young people don't know anything about like the early wilderness fights and and that spirit um, and um, and don't know that the kind of capitulating to the dominant powers and making friends with the dominant powers um, and becoming part and parcel of them don't they don't most young people don't know that there's another way but um, but it's it's the job of those environmental activists who knew those earlier days to impart that, just like it's the job of analysts to hold the space you're talking about. Um, and so, yeah, it's an interesting, um, I don't know what I want to call it, more than similarity, but almost sameness. Yeah, and it reminds me too of like like in the field of psychology and psychoanalysis and mental health, you know, I I have a side D, so it's a doctorate in psychology, so it's very clinically based. But that means I learned like everything the insurance companies wanted me to learn, like the DSM and all the psychopharmaceuticals. And in Florida, at that time, they were trying to pass this kind of master's degree that you could get along with your doctorate that would let you prescribe psychopharmaceuticals as a psychologist instead of being a medical doctor. 
and it was very like oriented towards like that kind of hospital medical model way of thinking and I just assumed that that was the only way to practice psychology like I didn't even know there was any other options at that time you know I originally went in thinking Freud and then when I got there I was like oh is this what Freud's turned into um, and it was only later after I finished school that I realized there, that there were still analysts practicing outside of the DSM diagnostic milieu. Oh my, how did you discover that? Well, I was lucky that I had an, uh, an analyst. I had my first analysis was when I was in graduate school. Um, <laughs> and so that was lucky because I originally thought that going into the field of psychology that you had to be in therapy to become a psychologist because that's what you had to do to be an analyst so I just assumed it was the same way and then when yeah. I got there it was not that way but they did have like a list of therapists in the area that would see students for like a reduced fee and one of them was in analytic training so he was a candidate and so I saw him as one of his cases I assume because <laughs> um, it was like $10 a session, <laughs> you know, so that was fortunate, but I still didn't even really understand that, like, we weren't practicing, like, I assumed I had, like, major depression disorder or something, you know, I, I assumed I had some sort of diagnosis like that, but we never really talked about it, and then when I finished school, I decided I wanted to go to analytic training, and then I realized there was a whole world of it still happening in New York, so... Wow, that's and and so then it, you just immersed yourself. It sounds like yeah. I started I started working in a hospital in an HIV clinic uh, when I moved to New York, and then did analytic training at night. You know, and then started a small private practice while I was still at the hospital. And then eventually, like gradually, just went into full time practice. Yeah. Okay. You know here. There is, um, so while I'm the only, formally the only analyst in Livingston, and then there are several in Bozeman, so these two towns are 25 miles apart, Livingston being much smaller. Um, there is um, a soon-to-be psychoanalyst, so He's finishing his candidacy out of an institute in Seattle. And he is also a psychiatrist. Um, and then there is um, a psychologist, a PsyD, by the way, who's, who's done no psychoanalytic training, but has an appreciation of analysis, like a real appreciation, and has referred cases to me where she feels eh, what I was trained to do isn't going to be adequate for you. You should be an analysis. Um, so that exists here too. Just, I don't know, just little other pieces of hope. <laughs> That's great though for people to understand what their like skill set is and where somebody might fit best. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I associate now to like, so that psychologist, how I, well, let's see, she came to a couple of seminars that my psychoanalytic institute had sponsored. So I knew her that way, but then there were a couple of things 
this is interesting. See how this might tie into our overall conversation. I expect it. I'm thinking of ways it does. Um, in here in Livingston, where my wife um, was then principal of the high school, and now she's co-principal and does other things um, administratively within the district, like essentially curriculum director. Um, there were two like threads of trauma in a in one school year. There was um, a succession of suicides in the school community and and local and, and town. So there were like and and a DUI death. So a child died in a DUI death, a gory death, horrible death. Um, and, and there were five suicides, I think, within like a month's time. Um, a couple of high school students, a couple of parents of high school kids. And, and, and so there was that. And then in the same school year, there was a Confederate flag kind of, you know, so... Uh, uprising so the whole nationalism thing that's been going on uh, across the world now and um, you know Trump and Bolsonaro and well it's a long list now of national leaders um, and and so yeah there were high school students flying Confederate flags and and so there was just tremendous tension around that between more clearly liberal thinkers and then nationalist right wingers. And, and that was feeling pretty traumatic. And so there were, those were at different times, um, separated by several months, but within the same school year. And so, this psychologist and I went in together and did like town hall gatherings. So sort of like large group therapy meetings, essentially. Um, and that's how we really came to know and appreciate each other. And so we spent like some hours. So we did maybe three or four different meetings like that over the suicides. The first one was enormous, like maybe 150 people in an auditorium where for, I forget how long, a few hours, couple hours, where anybody could speak freely. And it was kind of like Bionian rules of, of group analysis. Um, and in other words, people had to behave in such a manner where by um, they held themselves each responsible to say what was important to say for the good of themselves and others and whereby they comported themselves in such a way that um, constrained everyone else to do that as well. So kind of the ground rules of Bionian group work and, um, you know, Wilfred Bion. And, um, and it was amazing how people behaved and really heard each other. And so and then we did the same thing with the Confederate flag opposing groups. 
So I don't know. I just think of oppositions in the world and, you know, the, sometimes you can bring people together and sometimes, and, and so there we did with some real success. Bolas talks a lot about that. And then, and he talks about that in, and that's another one to read, by the way. He talks about that in his book, Meaning and Melancholia. Um, and, and, oh, and what is the subtitle of that? The Age of, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm wanting to say disenchantment. I'll find uh, it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but then there are times like this with the wilderness movement. I did ask representatives of, of those three environmental groups I listed uh, earlier, a couple of times listed, um, to meet with their opponents uh, in the environmental movement, and they all three refused. And, and to meet just to, well, in that sort of Bionian format of a work group that I just gave a brief synopsis of the ground rules for, those three groups all refused. Um, that was stunning. And even with me being a former president of one of those groups, they, in fact, they were the worst behaved. At least the other two groups got back to me and had the courtesy of, to my face saying no, the group that I'm a former president of, I contacted four members of that group um, of their staff and none of them even got back to me. Shocking. This is, this is the world we're in. So, so that's when I was like, okay, um, there's not gonna be a, a work group mentality amongst opposing groups here. So. Um, so that's when I went the direction I said, I mentioned Henry Giraud earlier, um, and Giraud talks about in social movements, the need to be, see if I can get the six descriptors, um, loud, um, disruptive, educative, noisy, systemic, and ongoing. Those are the six. And so I was like, okay they don't want to talk, then um, I'm going to find a way to behave publicly in those six ways to bring to the public what those three groups um, have kept out of the public discourse, and including the science that says we can't do this to these lower elevation lands of the Gallatin Range bordering Yellowstone National Park. And, um, and I, I found this group that had already formed the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance and started going to meetings with them. And then they asked me if I would run for president. And, uh, and so they elected me. And so we are being that, those six ways of being that Giraud cites. So yeah, there are times to make peace and there are times to resist. Good trouble. As John Lewis always says, you gotta, you gotta make good trouble sometimes. <laughs> That's great, good trouble. I like it. 
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Joseph Scalia, psychoanalyst, environmentalist, and social critic. For more, please visit the text accompanying this episode for links to his work. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Gained control of what? Images she would capture. Youth is almost always the emphasis. It is important to her what she wanted to remember in her lifetime, 800 of which remain. So the, and perhaps even history itself, act when it seems as if this is hugely significant for feeling and written, rewritten in a sense, in the Indeed, this has been helplessness and hopelessness that one may feel dominated the rest by sheer force. Works have been found to have microscopic lens. He first began drawing the abstract art, including soon he found a way to fashion a microscopic common or object while present but and his time which inundated people and experiencing. The shift in the world has been to accepting many produce both a familiarity experience not unlike the experience of art as if this history of art of dissonance when confronted, similar brand of cameras putting the power of Bindi, citizen, for the first time. Conclusion of a clear pioneer of getting her due, the Swedish artist between life and art. Levine defies herself by not having off Clint was interested in have their art and may art have its disturbing. As the first shows 
of the manifest content of their attack on rigid academic worldview, while the latter, particles, plants, and such qualities and abilities that such skills in work with the boundaries she left upon her death. Training over a person's lifetime, while this art markets another frequent, the radical possibilities of attended exhibition in art critics, dealers, and parties, if not actively persecuting their own groups and shows, ignored or unappreciated, Viennese secessionist group, retrospective entitled during their lifetimes, in the ethically resigned from the association, reportedly aware of, off, exiled, but of course over time, main concern was with freeing, freeing for the guardian, become the new norm, and masterpiece of design, and no one design continues, snowflake melted, that design was forever, capturing images of accidents, crime scenes, recall, reproduce, and recreate. This might seem was the time of prohibition, gang violence, and shift. Life and narrative in a new way, in a way more in rather than what they'd been born into based on.